As I said, today we are going to be focusing on this idea of being a community and growing into that capacity as a community gathered around Jesus Christ. Kind of the, the big picture of this morning is that I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we respond to it, when we lay hold of it, when it has power and, and uh, lordship in our lives, it, it naturally leads to the growth of community. That, that's something that comes forth. But there's also a, kind of a reciprocal response there as, as Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ leads us into community. It also requires a kind of maturity, a kind of growth, a kind of obedience from us to, to grow and, and flesh out that practice of community. It's a discipline. Probably, I imagine like many of you, I find it a struggle to make time in each week to get enough exercise and to stay physically fit. Most of us know up here what's good for us, what we should be putting into our body, the, the amount of exercise we need to get. But it's, it's taking that knowledge and then setting it into habits, into actions, right? That part requires follow-through, requires discipline. And for me, during the winter months, that's especially difficult because I can't just go outside my door as easily and, and go for a jog or a walk in the woods so the discipline is getting to the gym at least a couple times every week. But even if I get myself to the gym successfully, I show up to exercise, I found that I actually need a variety of workouts in order to stay fit, to stay healthy. You need to do cardiovascular exercise. You need strength training. You need stretching. You need all of these things sort of put together. So when I get to the gym, I have this loop that I like to do. Take about 15 minutes at the beginning on the track or on the treadmill, depending on where I'm at. After running, then I'll move to the weight room for 15 or 20 minutes. And then I'll go to the pool and and finish swimming 15 or 20 minutes uh, laps, kind of cooling down and stretching out. Now there are parts of that, that circuit, that cycle that I really enjoy and look forward to. And there are other parts of that workout that I don't particularly like, right? That I kind of grunt my way through. But all three of them are necessary. If I leave one of those pieces out, something gets neglected. And I would venture to say our our lives as human beings, our, our lives as disciples of Jesus, setting out towards spiritual maturity is no different. There are also disciplines that are required. Way back at the start of this school year in September, we took the first Sunday of this sort of ministry year, this school year, to look at a passage in Luke 6. And you might, you might think about it as a passage that describes the disciplines of Jesus. Maybe you could think about it. This is the way Jesus worked out his spiritual life and, and maturity. And in in this short passage we looked at in Luke 6, Luke tells us how Jesus spent one particular day. He told us that in in the early morning hours, you know, in those hours even before sunrise, Jesus had this habit 
of, of spending time in worship with his father, right, in prayer, in that, in that intimate kind of quiet space, growing in worship. Luke says that, that from that place of worship, Jesus then called the community of his friends, his disciples, to himself. He gathered them together. And he spent much of, of the morning investing in them, teaching them as his community in these, these horizontal relationships, right? So, so Jesus practices that vertical dimension. Jesus practices this horizontal dimension of community with his disciples. And then Luke tells us in that same passage in chapter 6 that he takes that community of disciples and then in the afternoon and evening he sends them out. He goes with them in mission into the neighboring villages of Galilee. And in mission together they proclaim the gospel. They heal the sick. They push back the powers and principalities of darkness. So on that particular day, Jesus, again, goes from worship to community to mission. That's his circuit, so to speak. And that's not, I think, just what happened on one particular day, but but that was a, a routine, that was a pattern throughout the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. Worship, community, mission. As a a group of people at JCC seeking to follow Jesus Christ, our desire is to commit to growing into each of these areas here as a church body, as a church family. And so that's why from uh, September through Thanksgiving this past fall, we, we spent a, a, a long, kind of extended period looking at the discipline of worship. Right, what does it mean to have a life of worship? How do you cultivate your relationship with, with God? How do you spend time in prayer? How do you, how do you grow in, in corporate worship? What does the discipline of worship look like? Today, though, and as we move into January and February, I want to shift gears and focus on the, the second dimension, the second phase of our conditioning, our spiritual discipline. And that's how do we grow stronger in community? And we might think, well, community is just this thing that sort of happens to us. It's the people that, that gather around us. But I think there is, there's also an intentional piece to that. Right? Community is a discipline. It's an exercise. We have to choose to grow toward one another and toward Jesus as we do that. But community isn't a a negotiable. Community is an essential part of our discipleship. And so to that end, these next two months, we're going to be studying one community in particular as a kind of case study. It's a community that was called together around the message of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And it was in the the city of Philippi in, uh, in Greece in Macedonia. Some of you have been sitting in on Dominic's class downstairs on the book of Philippians, and if you have, you're, you're going to have a head start on us. You'll have already gotten some of the, the, the pieces and parts of this community. Next week, we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 1, but before we get to Paul's letter to the Philippians, today I want to start with the story of how that church, how that community came into existence in the first place. And that's recorded for us 
in Acts chapter 16. So as uh, we move forward this morning, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 6. Let me pray for us as we hear the word of God. Jesus, I thank you that you are always calling us into life, life that is abundant, life that is full, but that 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 life requires obedience and challenge. Lord, you call us into things that in order to grow us, we need to change and, and mature and press on in the gospel. Lord, I pray this morning as we hear of your gospel going into Philippi, that it would give us a vision for how your community and your gospel take root in this place. Lord, as I preach this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations, the convictions, the applications of each heart be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read for you this whole section from Verse 6 in uh, chapter 16, all the way through verse 40. I'm going to read it in one go. You're welcome to follow along. You're welcome to close your eyes, if you like, and, and imagine kind of the community that's coming together there. But as you listen, I have a task for you, an assignment. Okay, I want you to be listening for this particular question. What kind of community does the gospel produce? When the gospel is proclaimed and preached here in Philippi, what what qualities of a community come forth? What adjectives might you use to describe this community that Paul uh, is part of in Philippi? And as an exercise in community, after we read the passage, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to talk to someone behind you or beside you and tell them your answers, okay? So, So be listening. What adjectives, what words would you say describe the kind of community the, gospels, the gospel produces when it's preached. All right, this is Acts 16. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. This is Paul's missionary journey. He's in Turkey or Asia Minor. But the Holy Spirit's preventing him from going in a particular direction. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed Mysia and went down to Troas, which is on the the border. It's on the coast, the western coast of Turkey, across from Greece to the west. There at Troas, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Samothrace, which is kind of an island peninsula area in the water, and the next day we went on to Neapolis, which is in Greece, Macedonia. From there we traveled overland to Philippi, a Roman colony, 
and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. He fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains Came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, 
release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went back to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. All right, so you've got 30 seconds. Okay, find someone next to you, maybe that you're not related to if possible. And again, you've just heard a snapshot in three weeks or so, Paul's in Philippi in this community of the gospel springs forth. How would you describe that community? What adjectives would you use to describe it? Take 30 seconds. What do you notice about that community? All right, hopefully you've got your your short list here. With the time we have remaining this morning, I want to make a few observations of my own about this church, this community in Acts 16. And you can compare, maybe you you saw some of these qualities, maybe you you saw some additional qualities. But but the ones I'm going to highlight, I think, are are features, are characteristics of the community that, that Paul is a part of here in Philippi, in Acts 16. But I think they are also qualities and characteristics that are likely to be found in any community that is centered around the gospel of Jesus. And that would include ourselves this morning. The first is that communities that gather around Jesus often arise in unexpected places. They don't, they don't always happen. Community doesn't always happen where we're looking for it to take place. If you remember back to the start of this passage, Acts makes it really clear, Luke makes it really clear that Philippi was never a place Paul saw himself going. Right, Paul had traveled all over Asia Minor. He had preached in all of these different towns. He was starting churches. That was kind of his home territory. And he was reaching the western edge of Asia Minor. And he was just about to double back and and kind of revisit some of the, the places he had already been. When we're told that the spirit of Jesus had other plans for Paul and his his team. They they reach Troas, which is, again, on the the far western edge of Turkey. And they're they're sleeping there, you know, this coastal town, when Paul has a vision. He has a dream in the night. And it's a vision of this man from Macedonia, a man from, from over the western side, beyond the sea, into Greece and Macedonia, pleading for his help pleading for the gospel to come. And with that dream, right, the the history and and the direction of the church, really the history and direction of Western civilization is dramatically redirected. 
Most of us need Jesus to, to redirect us, to lead us into community. We have a, a desire, most of us, to be known. We have a desire and, and a want to, to have some kind of community surrounding us. But, but gospel communities aren't ones that we are in charge of. We don't get to choose how it happens. Jesus is the Lord of this community. He leads us into the places where he is moving, where he is gathering people around himself. Ten years ago, I never even dreamed of visiting Vermont, much less pastoring a church here or raising my family here. Katie and I had been traveling and living throughout Asia. We were studying in Canada for a season. But then we met this couple in Vancouver, right? Dominic and Bridget. And somehow, five years after we met them, I was standing behind this pulpit in Jericho, right? Didn't see that one coming. Your community was a mystery to me a decade ago. This place was a mystery to me. I knew nothing about it. But God was arranging, God was leading, God was prompting not just our family, but he was preparing you and this community to receive us. My community happens, communities of the gospel happen when God takes the initiative, when God leads, when God prepares and cultivates. So I think the gospel of Jesus has a way of leading us into places that we did not expect to be. With people, much of the time, we did not expect to be with. But if we're willing to set aside our expectations, our itineraries, our preferences, it's pretty clear as you read the book of Acts, as you read the book, books of the New Testament, that, that Jesus is committed to connecting people, right? to building community, to creating places where we can know and be known in. So a question I would reflect back to you this morning is where might Jesus be leading you into community right now? You might have a a certain community that you're comfortable or familiar with, but, but is there a growing edge there? And the way you might reflect on that or determine that are by asking yourself some of these questions. Where do you see God moving around you? Where, where do you see God kind of stirring up opportunity? Where are there people who are eager to welcome you, who have a desire to connect with you, to know you, whether they're a believer or, or not at this point? Where are there people that need your help or encouragement or wisdom? Where do you notice a a softness to the way of Jesus? People soft or or maybe open to the things of the gospel. What if God might be preparing friendships or, or people for you to share your life in more deeply with them? And then what What would be one next small step to move closer, to move out, to to obey and and go toward those places, those communities the Holy Spirit might be initiating? So gospel communities appear in unexpected places. 
The second is that as these communities emerge around the gospel, I think they often grow up through the practices of worship and hospitality. And you see both of those actually quite a bit in Acts 16. We're told when Paul and his friends turn up in Philippi, they know no one. But as, a, as an observant Jew, Paul goes on the first Sabbath day that he's there, and he goes down to the river, it says. It's not because Paul wants to go swimming. Okay? There's, there's no synagogue in Philippi. And in the, the communities throughout the, the Greek and Roman world, if there was not a, a large enough community to build a synagogue... Often they would meet near bodies of of running water because these places were, by default, ceremonially clean. They were already sort of pure and they could actually do some of the the ceremonial cleansing uh, rituals that were part of their worship there by these streams or rivers. So Paul goes to the river to worship the living God himself. But as he's there, one of the first people Paul meets is this woman named Lydia. And we don't get a lot of detail about Lydia. Lydia is one of these characters and acts that, that I'd love to know more about. We can gather that she is an entrepreneur, a businesswoman of some kind. She deals in, in textile and cloth. We can put together that she is a Greek, and she is a Gentile, and she would be an outsider. She wasn't from Philippi, she had come to this community. No mention is made of her family or or a husband, so perhaps she was a widower. She could have been divorced. She may never have married. But the one thing Luke does point out to us is that Lydia was a worshiper. He says she was a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile looking for a God to worship. And she's come to this prayer meeting in order to to foster a a deeper connection, a deeper sense of worship with the living God. And her commitment to worship brings her to the river that morning where she hears the gospel of Jesus for the first time. And as Lydia responds to that gospel, she becomes the first, she becomes the catalyst, she becomes the agent around which, which this first gospel community in Philippi will form. So her worship leads to the birth of this new community. But I want you to notice something else in verses 14 and 15. It's a link, I think. It says that as the Lord opened Lydia's heart to to worship Jesus, as she responded to the gospel Paul was preaching, verse 14, what does she do next? She opens her heart to the gospel and she opens her household to Paul and his companions. The the waters of baptism lead directly to the practice of hospitality. As soon as she was baptized, it says, she goes to Paul and she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, then you got to come and stay at my house. You're staying with me. You're sharing life with me. In my community. So I think Lydia's example suggests to us that that worship doesn't end in a sanctuary. Worship doesn't end with the sacrament of baptism. Worship doesn't end when we exit the doors of the sanctuary. 
Worship is meant to cultivate all these other places and spaces in our everyday lives where we connect with each other and we live out this call to discipleship, right? Life on life. So worship is meant to lead us into the practice of hospitality, of gathering people into our lives. So a question I would put to you then, by way of application, where, where do you see this practice, this discipline of hospitality in your life? Whose households, whose kitchens, whose living rooms have you been invited into recently? Or turn that around, who have you brought into your homes? Who, who have you made space for in your daytimer to, to take out to lunch or to invite out for coffee or to get to know better? For truly a community where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, then we should expect this this practice of hospitality to be happening with some frequency, right? It it has to be a a growing desire of who we are. We we gather in that we're, we're, we're available both to Jesus, we open our hearts to him, but we open our homes and our hearts to one another. A third reality more difficult reality that we notice, though, is that gospel communities always eventually encounter resistance. In Acts 16, we see that Paul is just getting comfortable, just settling into Lydia's household, maybe a few days, maybe a week, when one morning on the way to this prayer spot, right, a, a young slave girl, a servant girl, possessed by an evil spirit, begins sort of harassing them. And Paul, in in the name of Jesus and his lordship, prays for her and delivers her from this evil spirit. But as a result, the young woman loses this talent or gift she had for telling fortunes. And that was a, a lucrative source of income for her owners. And so they go after Paul. And my guess is they may go after Lydia as well, right, as, as the person hosting him. And we're told in verse 20... That they come and they accuse Paul and his company of representing a way of life. A kind of community that is antithetical to to this place. They say it's antithetical to the power, the way, the law of Rome. And just as a side note, notice that they they say for, for us as Romans. That becomes important later when we study Philippians. Because again, Philippi was a Roman city in a Greek world. It was in Greece... But, but it had been made by a kind of special appointment of Caesar, a Roman colony. The people in Philippi had Roman citizenship. They were very proud of that fact. They don't, they don't know much about Paul, but they sense in what Paul is saying and what he's proclaiming about Jesus that he represents a counter-community. Right? A community that runs in a different direction than the one of the world around them. And they're careful to point out before the the crowds and before the court here that the lordship of Caesar and the lordship of this man Jesus, they they don't fit together very nicely. They say it's unlawful for us to to be part of these kinds of communities, the way of Jesus. Now we don't have quite the same situation in our context, in our culture. But I don't think it's ever easy. It's never the way of least resistance to be part of a community of the gospel. 
Today, our world is full of many communities, alternative communities, right? All sorts of different places offering to empower us or to affirm us if we will root our identity in something other than the kingdom of Jesus. So we have these tensions, we have these resisting powers, right? Calling us to leave behind our identity as a community of Jesus Christ. And I think that tension, that resistance is is evidence enough to tell us that we need each other. We need the community of the church in order to to continue, to mature, to persevere. A community, spiritual community, deep community is not just a luxury, right? It's a necessity to, to continue in faithfulness when resistance comes. So gospel communities appear in unexpected places. They, they grow up around worship and the practice of hospitality. They encounter resistance. But despite all the difficulties that we read about in this chapter, this new community just a few weeks old in Philippi, one of the striking things about this, this chapter is the presence, the pervasive presence of joy. There is a resilience to this community even as they face resistance. There's something deeply powerful, something profoundly good, peculiarly wonderful about a community whose hope is rooted in Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. That hope, that joy cannot be destroyed by resistance, cannot be taken away by human opposition. In verse 25, we read that Paul and Silas, they're locked up good and tight. Right? It says they throw them in the innermost cell. They put their feet in, in stocks and chains. Right? The intention of the jailers is that these guys aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Taking careful precautions. And some of the commentators said the way they're chained up, the way it's described here, means that they basically would have no position or posture that would be comfortable. Right? They weren't able to lay down with their feet in socks. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, to really sleep or to, to maintain any sort of normal position. So what do Paul and Silas do? Right? They're facing resistance. They're locked up. They're persecuted. Well, they opt for the most unlikely posture, the most unlikely position. Right? In the face of opposition, they begin to worship. They begin to praise, it says, and to sing hymns to their God. And the joy in that jail cell, the worship in that jail cell becomes contagious. Verse 25 says, the other prisoners in the jail pay attention. They start to take notice of what's happening. And then, of course, there's this incredible, miraculous earthquake that springs the prison doors open. It breaks the chains off every captive. And rather than than running for their freedom, rather than forming a mob and and being vindictive toward their captors, the first instinct of Paul and his friends here is to show mercy. They go to the jailer. They, they report themselves. We're here. And the jailer then has his own encounter 
with Jesus and his gospel. The jailer, it says, washes Paul's wounds. And then in the very next action, Paul, in return, washes the jailer and his household in the waters of baptism. And then again, we see this pattern. Just like Lydia responded to the gospel and opened her home, the jailer responds to the gospel and opens his home to Paul. And we we don't know, maybe the other prisoners as well. And this new family of Jesus gathers around a jailer's table in verse 34. And it says that meal, that moment, was characterized by great joy. He was filled with joy that morning. Then it says, before leaving Philippi, right? We've had a few weeks here. This is all happening pretty quickly. Verse 40. They eat in the jailer's home. There's this great joy. Verse 40 says, Paul and Silas head back to Lydia's house for yet another meal and a time of encouragement. And then despite all they've been through, they spend time worshiping. They spend time encouraging and equipping and sending out this body. And you get the sense that as Paul leaves Philippi, there is this irrepressible sense of joy and conviction that that this gospel, this community that's just been planted, is alive. It's, It's breathing. It's growing. And even the resistance it's facing won't stop it. As we move next week and the next two months into the letter of Philippians, let me challenge you to look for these four qualities, right? The gospel showing up in unexpected places. Community showing up in unexpected places. Community being fostered through worship of the living God and through the practice of hospitality, of life on life. Community encountering the reality of resistance and suffering and persecution. But then that community being marked by great joy. Let me also challenge you to think about where you're noticing those things in your own life and in this community. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you lead us deeper into your life, the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, would you lead us deeper into life with one another. And would you do this because it is your good news, it is your gospel, it is your rule and reign over us in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.